warm welcome to you this morning. Paul Jenkins is my name for those of you who do not know. And our pastor is uh, out for this weekend, uh, out of town, so I'll be filling in. And uh, I think we will look at a passage this morning. Obviously, your, your bulletin will have the passage on the back and uh, that we will be studying in. Uh, part of the research into looking into this uh, and in, because this is a riveting part of Scripture, just impacting uh, the life of Jesus Christ. And of course, this is whom we profess in. This is our Lord and Savior. And this John chapter 19 will show forth to us some very, very, very important lifelong information for us to understand for many reasons. But in researching, I went back and I, as from time to time, read some of the history of the church, some of the writers of the church from the past, and particularly my favorites are those from the, uh, from the Reformation period, 1500s and particularly 1600s and 1700s, uh, Puritans and uh, the pilgrims uh, that uh, were renownedly in love with their Lord and Savior and wrote about him. And one particular pilgrim, excuse me, Puritan during that period of time of the 1600s was a man by the name of John Owen. John Owen. And if you ever come across any of his writings of antiquity, he was a lover of Jesus Christ and wrote profoundly about the scriptures. And he produced a 15-volume set on the scriptures. In the 10th volume, which I had been exposed to many, many, many years ago, was about Christology or Christology, whichever way you want to pronounce it, Latin or English, and centered upon uh, the person and work of Jesus Christ, which is what we're going to look at in this gospel this morning. And, but what was so alluring and so drawing to his work was that particular volume's title. The title of that 10th volume was a theology in itself extracted from Holy Scripture. And I am just mesmerized every time that I think about that title. It's a book a man has written and poured his heart into, or 15 volumes of a book about the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and about the scriptures and about God and the Holy Spirit. So it is not revelation. It is the heart of a man pouring out the love of his God for what he has done, the grace that has been given to him. But that 10th volume was titled, The Death of Death, in the death of Christ. Let me repeat that and ponder it just for a moment. The death of death in the death of Christ. And that's where we're going to go this morning. Not to proof text anything that he wrote, but to look at the death of Christ. The last hours of his life here on this earth 
the profound effect it has and had on the men there that were with him in the different various groups and its earthly and eternal perspective. But before we do, let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you for our time this morning. With hearts of gratitude, we desire to break the bread of life. And the Holy Spirit teach us and that we be doers of your word and live upon it and love upon it and seek the treasure of the kingdom both now and forevermore. In Christ's name, amen. So let's go to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. It's a long chapter, and basically what I'm going to do is just give you a small overture of the first part of this chapter, and then our text will literally center upon the 28th through the 37th verse. So when we go to John 19, we see that in John chapter 13, Christ has instituted the covenant of his bread and blood. That's his last supper with his men. And so from that chapter 13 all the way to 19, these are the last hours of the life of Jesus Christ. And most of that time, 13, 14, 15, 16, and chapter 17, center on the intimacy. If you have a red letter Bible and you read this, you will see most every word, 99% of those words in there come from Jesus Christ. The passion of Christ, the truth of Christ, the conveyance of Christ to his men in his last period of time. And when you get to John chapter 17, verse 1, he proclaims to them, my hour has come. And if you remember, when you read to the rest of the Gospels, there's that continuous reference to Christ telling them when they come speak with him, that no, I'm not going to do this, or not going to go here, I'm not going to do that, because my hour has not yet come. And in John chapter 17, verse 1, he proclaims that hour, that time of his death, eternally set before there was even one day on the earth, was now coming to that time. And so after that, we find that uh, the high priest and those come to get him, and in verse 19, we see he's before Pilate. Pilate had him scourged, uh, put a crown upon him, and they mocked him again and accused him and, and said, crucify him. And even yet, Pilate said, I still find no guilt in him. But they still, the Jewish people, do declare the leaders, the Pharisees and those, to have him crucified. And so as the dialogue continues, uh, Christ tells Pilate, I have authority over you. And Jesus said, you would have no authority. Or Pilate says, speaking of his authority to crucify him, Christ answers and said, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. And for this reason, he who delivered me up to you has the greater sin. Speaking of those that had brought him in to his own people. As a result, Pilate made efforts to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. And when Pilate therefore heard these words, he brought Jesus out and set him down on the judgment seat at the place called Gabbatha, the pavement. 
Politics was present then, in that age. Politics is still present today. And even the Jewish people, the Jews who said their king or their belief system, their law was Abraham, Isaac, and Moses, now or wholeheartedly desires to tell and remind Pilate that, oh, our king is Rome. Our king is Caesar. And that's your king too, Pilate, so you better do what we say or else it would not go well for you. And so, in verse, and I'm just going through this, getting up to, to uh, verse 28. And so the Jews proclaimed that they had no king but Caesar. They had had King Jesus in front of them for years of his life and still in denial of who he was. So then he, Pilate delivered him to those to be crucified. And they took Jesus and went out bearing his own cross. And then they put the inscription above the cross that said, this is the king of the Jews. And the Jews were outraged at this. They wanted him to change that sign. He is the king of the Jews. And they wanted that sign to read only that he said he was the king of the Jews. They denied him being the king of the Jews. But Pilate left that on there and it was written in the Hebrew, Latin, and in the Greek. And so we come to the point of where the soldiers take his garments, take them into four parts, his outer garment, they, they keep intact, they cast lots for it, and then his mother, Christ's mother, and others were there in front, and Christ commends them to John to take them into his own household. So let's look at the text. John chapter 19, verse 28. And after these things, after all these events up to this very time, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished in order that the scriptures might be fulfilled, said, I am thirsty. And a jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. And when Jesus, therefore, had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. And the Jews, therefore, because it was the day of preparation so that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, they asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. And the soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other man who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately they came out blood and water. And he, this is John speaking of himself, who has been born witness, and my witness is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass, that the scripture might be fulfilled, that not a bone of him shall be broken, 
And the other scripture, they shall look upon whom, upon him whom they pierced, upon whom they pierced. So when we look at these, we see the very dramatic events happening in just these few number of verses. It is powerful what is being conveyed here in the life and the death of Jesus Christ. And we need to significantly understand and comprehend it, not only for our benefit, but for the benefit of those we may be able to share his life and death as others that we may also be able to share the fullness of the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ our Lord. When you looked at that, or when I conveyed the essence of that title, the death of death in the death of Christ, you see the death of death. And the importance of that is in this text is that we as people are born physically into this world. And as we were discussing in Sunday school this morning, as I was conveying, the reality that the two things in our life are sin and death. And these come from the fall of Adam and Eve in the first three chapters of the book of Genesis and convey on into everyone's life. Everyone is conceived in sin, born of sin, and sin is original to them. It wasn't just original to Adam and Eve. We sin because we are sinners. And that proclamation is set forth in Genesis chapter 3. The charge to everyone is sinner. The penalty is death. Completely throughout the scripture because of our separation in sin to our holy, holy God. The curse, the fall, the judgment, sin and death enters into. That's why we all have experienced death in some form. A loved one, a friend, relative or whatnot. The reality of it is there. And however, the reality of sin is there also. It is there poignantly. Look at yourself. Think through your mind of the thoughts, the deeds. Look at the world about you and see. Sin has invaded all of us. To the degree that we have fallen and there is no restoration to that position that was there with Adam and Eve before they denied God's word. Hath God said, so the serpent conveyed to them. And therein lies the sin, the denial of the authority and the sovereignty of God, and the choice that they made, two people, to be their own God. Because that's what Satan told them. Oh, if you take of it and you eat, you will be like him. 
And so we have the reality of death, the reality of sin, the curse upon us, paradise lost. And if we want to understand it even fuller, we could go to Ephesians and see where Paul told them, you're dead in your trespass and sins. Sin trespassed the holy God, brought death upon mankind. For everyone, as the Hebrew writer says, will die. Death is physical. Sin is spiritual, but is played out physically. And in that death that sin brought to us, and the sin that came in left us without any hope. But, thanks be to God, rich in mercy, we will see this portion of the, t- of the scripture that we're looking at brings into the life the fullness of the God's grace and mercy to us. So we're speaking here of death. We're speaking here of Christ's death on the cross. We're speaking here of being dead. It's not an obsession with death. It's a reality that if Christ did not die on that cross, there is no hope for us because there would be no resurrection and there would be no eternity with him. So we in Christianity, I think we just model along in this country accepting the cross and the crucifixion and the death and the burial and the resurrection without understanding fully the significance that it has in relation to all of our life as we live. Because see, if we even read the Apostles' Creed last Sunday, as I read it for us, I want you to understand something about dead. Dead has no degree. Dead is dead. And there is no degree to dead. It either is or it isn't. If it isn't dead, it's alive. So for one to be dead, they have to be alive. And even when when he read the Apostle's Creed last Sunday, It says here, and this was the Apostles' Creed, it wasn't written by the Apostles, it was written by church leaders in the early centuries to to espouse a confession of faith in worship service, to give glory to the God and state forth from the Bible the feelings of their heart and beliefs. Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He ascended into heaven, excuse me, he was crucified dead and buried. The third day he rose again from the dead. And he sits at the right hand of God the Father now, and from there he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. The essence of Christ being dead on that cross was the fullness of, of God's eternal salvation coming in 
to play, coming into the New Testament, coming into the fulfillment. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, because this is where Paul said, I preach nothing but Christ and him crucified. And hopefully these verses here will give us the understanding of that, because as we go on into the text of John, we're going to see the forensics, and we're going to see the eyewitness. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jew and Gentile, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to flesh and not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are. But no man should boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us the wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And when I came to you, verse 1 of 2, I did not come to you with superiority of speech or wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. See the emphasis of the crucifixion that Paul places to this Corinthians church and to all the other epistles that he sets forth. Because he gives us an even extended understanding to the essentials of this in 1 Corinthians 15. If you just briefly go to that if you would like. And in the first few verses there he says, still speaking to this Corinthian church. Chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you received, and which you also stand, by which you are saved, holding fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then he goes on to say, and he appeared to many. And then in verse 12 he says, now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then even Christ has not been saved. And if Christ has not been raised, uh, raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God 
because we witnessed against God that he raised Christ from the dead, when in fact he didn't. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished already. And if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are most of all be, be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, Adam, by a man came the resurrection of the dead, Christ, the second Adam. For as in all, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and after that those at his coming, and then comes the end when he delivers up the kingdom, the church, to God his Father, and when he has abolished all rule and authority on this earth, verse 25, for he must reign, reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be abolished is death. So the crucifixion crosses all of the realm of the fullness of the covenant God enacted in salvation. So let's look at it. Let's look at some of the forensics of it. And let's look at some of the, writ the witnesses in this text. And let's understand that we need to understand and to know this. We need to live out this. We need to see the life of Christ, the passion of Christ, the death of Christ, and all of its ramifications and implications for us and for our life. But we also need to see it because this text and these Gospels are what we're called to minister to those who have not known him. In a fallen world where sin and death reigns paramount. And that became most impacting to me in the last few years as we live in this country. It's a changing country. The social aspects of it are rapidly in a turmoil like the ocean. The political aspects likewise. Borders are being opened. People are coming in. The world is not a secluded area. No more than this church is secluded to a community here. This church will be changing. This church is changing. And this church will change because God and his sovereignty is moving about, bringing forth that which he so desires. And we're called to preach that gospel, to share that gospel, to make disciples, to live that gospel to those that he would bring in to our presence, where it be here in this church in the streets, in the neighborhood, in our workplace. And the importance of that really came to me a number of year ago, years ago when I read a book by an Arabic man named Nabil Kershi. And the name of that book was Seeking Allah and Finding Jesus. And it was the story of this young man's life 
who ended up here in America because his father was had American citizenship and was actually in the military in special security and was able to go to school here in college here. And in his college days, he came face to face with some Christian young men and women who witnessed continuously with him. Now this is a young man who had been, parents had read the Koran to him while he was in his mother's womb and read to him every day, studied with him every day. And he was as devout as you could be in a Hamadi sect, which would be equal to the Pharisees or the Sadducees, experts in the letter of the law. And through this process of college and witnesses and testimony, he came and God used those people to bring him to grace by the gift of faith. But what was astonishing in it, and what's astonishing in this text, and what we need to see in it, is that this young, young man in his book set forth the Muslim faith in a very, very understandable comprehension because it dialogues back and forth between Christianity and Mohammedism, between Muhammad and Jesus, Allah and Jehovah. And it brought to me an understanding of one particular thing here that comes out of this text of John chapter 19, is that the Muslim faith in the Quran, the Quran 4 and 157, says Jesus was neither killed nor crucified, but so it appeared. I don't know about you folks, but as Christians, that gives us hundreds of millions of people to share the gospel of the reality of the life and the death of Jesus Christ. Because without it, there would be no resurrection. And without it, there would be no hope. And without it, there would be no eternity. And here's how they explain it away. In two teachings, the one first one is called the swoon theory. Where if God could and had the capacity and ability to save Jesus Christ and resurrect him, then he could have just swooned over those that were there and not let him die on the cross, but so it appeared. Deception, kind of like a card trick. The other theory is a substitution theory. That wasn't Christ on that cross. That was somebody Muhammad says they put in place and was substituted and it wasn't the real Jesus. So why is this text so important to us? Let's look at it. We have all the drama of the courtroom here. Verse 28. Here's the deity of Christ. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, why? so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. 
said, I am thirsty. It's a beautiful text of the humanity and the deity of Christ, knowing all things. But a spirit does not thirst. Only a human being thirsts, the incarnate Son of God. And there was a jar full of wine there, sour wine, that they put a sponge upon it and put it to a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. And when Jesus, therefore, had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Here's the evidence. This is the courtroom. Here is the information being poured forth. The deity and humanity there so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. That's reference to the Old Testament being brought forward in Christ. The only other thing left after these things, he knew all had been accomplished. The only other thing left was his death on the cross to secure and to fulfill the will of his Father in bringing redemption and the eternal salvation of God together in his person. And the sour wine and the hyssop. Hyssop is an herb that is very aromatic and it's very flavorful. The sour wine, the actual Greek will interpret it almost to the point of poison. The bitterness and the sweetness of the cross. Because you see, he had already taken the cup in the earlier chapters when he instituted the Lord's Supper with his apostles and said, here's my body. And the cup, this is the last time I will take the cup with you until I return again. This was the wine of bitterness. And yet, with the hyssop, the wine of sweetness, the death and the life of Christ. And when he, gave, when he received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Finished. Complete. This is the last thing needed done. And he bowed up his head and gave his spirit. That spirit, as you'll see in your text, is a small s, is it not? It's a Greek word, pneuma. And what it is saying is he breathed his last because this word pertains to physical life. It is finished. I have completed. I have come to do the will of my Father. And I have completed it. And it is finished. And I have breathed out my last. And I thirst right before this, which depicted all of the humanity of Christ. And he knew all things had been accomplished except him to be on that cross. Jesus is dead. He is dead on the cross by the witness of his own testimony. I thirst to fulfill the scriptures because it was so proclaimed he would and that he would receive the gall of bitterness in the last drink that he would take to sow and to give us the understanding of that bitter cup, though along with the sweetness of the enormity and the immensity of sin, 
avalanching down upon Jesus Christ and that that is why he was dying for the sin of the world for sin that was in opposition to his holy God and he said it was finished I came to do the will of the Father and it is finished and he gave up his spirit so that's some of the forensics here's some of the witnesses verse 31 the Jews therefore said because it is a day of preparation and so the body should not remain on the cross for the Sabbath they asked Pilate to break the legs so that he may be taken away there's your first witness the Jews they weren't any more worried about who Jesus Christ was they were only worried about their ceremony and their ritual they didn't want him, any Jew hanging on the cross you see Mark records this happened at 3 p.m. in the afternoon and at twilight only in three hours would be the start of the Sabbath the Passover and no Jew by their law could hang on a cross at the time that the Sabbath so they were far more concerned about their ceremony and their ritual and their laws their laws that they even broke when they drug Christ during the night to be tried without any witnesses for himself which their law stated and then God was not their king either because they told Pilate Caesar is our king and it's amazing the deceitfulness that goes on in the accomplishment of Christ's life so they wanted his legs broken crucifixion is by asphyxiation it's by asphyxiation where you hang on the cross with bent knees on the platform where you're stretched out and your diaphragm is stretched and you can barely breathe. And it's not meant for a quick kill. It's meant for a painful, prolonged, cognizant death. And these soldiers were experts at it. Rome was an expert at it. The Jews had no authority to commend a man to death and to, and to carry that out. Only Rome could do that. And so part of the process to enhance that asphyxiation was to ride up along on your horse or walk up there and take a large sword and break both legs in half. <laughs> the body slumped. No more breath. It's over. That's crucifixion. The amazing thing in this, in the forensics is they did not break the legs of Christ. Why? Yet they pierced the sword in his side. Why? The Jews knew he was dead. And the soldiers, let's look at this. Verse 32. Therefore came and broke the legs of the first man and the other man who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his leg. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately they came out blood and water. They said he was dead, and he was. But piercing the side of a person in crucifixion is counterintuitive to what a crucifixion is. It's totally in opposition to it. And even knowing that he was already dead, they pierced his side to fulfill the Old Testament scriptures. 
Zechariah, Psalms, Numbers, all of these texts. And here's the forensics. Christ gave his testimony that it's finished and he gave up his spirit, his last breath. The Jews said he's dead. Let's break his legs to be for sure. But the soldiers said, no, we don't need to. He's already dead. But the assurance of that was the piercing of the side, which is rarely recorded in the history of crucifixion. Because if he was still alive, then you just augmented the process of asphyxiation by bringing on a quicker death. So what is the purpose of the blood and water? When you go back to the Koran, you have hundreds of millions of people denying the crucifixion and death on the cross. And here we have the fullness of the witnesses and the forensic to say, yes, he did. And God's proclamation with that last trickle of blood and plasma states to all, my son is dead. My son is dead. The witnesses, the forensics, they're all here. Not a bone of him shall be broken. That goes back to the Jewish ceremonies and sacrifices that were brought in the Old Testament. You gave your best to the Lord, and nothing you gave him, ox, lamb, sheep, had, could have a broken bone. Because Christ, excuse me, God proclaimed in the Old Testament, bring it without defect. God gave us perfection, sinlessness, and God in himself fulfills and shows his love for that Old Testament and the ceremonies and rituals by the spotless Lamb of God. Not who broken bones no more. And they said that those, another scripture says that they shall look upon him whom they've pierced. There's no more better proof of death than every drop of moisture from your body, both blood and plasma, is gone. None of us can live without the blood. None of us can live without the water. And in his humanity, there is no greater proof text in the scriptures here that he died on that cross. And that is our story. Because without that crucifixion, there is no burial. There is no resurrection. There is no hope. There is no eternity. So it wasn't a substitution or a swoon. It was the reality of the truth of all that's here in God's Word. Now go back to two things. Romans chapter 8. We did a part of that this morning, this text, but I want to go through it again in Sunday school. I want to read it to you if you want to go to it and read along with me and see the beauty and the fullness of John to Romans, of Christ's death to life, and the glory it brings to his church. Romans 8, chapter 1. There is, there is therefore 
now. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. We have people to tell about this glorious death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And then we have God to give great gratitude for. The law setting us free from the law of sin and death because he paid for it. He paid it fully, both for the on earth now and in eternity. So you see why that title of John Owen's writing is so mesmerizing to me. The death of death in the death of Christ. He paid for our sin. Yes, we will die physically. But death has no dominion over us because we were made alive in Christ to live in eternally with him forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning and our time together. We rejoice in the truth of your word, the scriptures. Know how our hearts are moved, Lord, to see the beauty, the majesty, the holiness, the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. And to consider the debt that we owe has been paid. For only when the life was given can new life be given. And we thank you, Lord, for that new life in Jesus Christ. And to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen.